this is everyone's personal favorite show. Keep breathy. Welcome. Brandy Means is the author of the book Beacon Fantasy and also the CEO of Sorts and Knights, a company that invests in and operates small business. Brian was the chief market officer for Ethereum blockchain for three years and resigned in 2021 in order to focus more on Bitcoin blockchain education. This led him to offer Bitcoin evangelism. In addition to his professional experience as an executive in the blockchain industry, he has been an entrepreneur for 14 years since the age of 22 when he started a small business with his wife, Alicia. They have grown that into a chain of locations, a parent company that invests in small business, digital assets, and DeFi. Brian has been investing in Bitcoin and the wider crypto market since 2014 and advising entities on their digital asset strategies since 2016. Brian and I talked about all this Bitcoin, actually not just Bitcoin, but cryptocurrency in general in this episode. And here's the thing, his book, Bitcoin Adventurism, is on Amazon now. And it's the first book ever. There's no any other books have done this before. There's a 1,000 Bitcoin wallet inside of the book. It's Brian's wallet, and he's okay for you to hack it to get his Bitcoins. It rose over $20 million, man. It means you have the chances to become a millionaire of lights by reading a book. If you want to know how this could be possible, listen to our episode with Brian all the way to the end. Without further ado, let's get right into it. Hey, Brian, welcome to the show. Good to see you, Errol. I appreciate you having me on, brother. Yeah, uh, I just told you uh, the reason why I want to know more about Bitcoin is because uh, I'm looking into CBDC and I don't consider myself as a financial professional. And I know you are a Bitcoin, uh, uh, not just a friendula, but also I would like to say you are a professor. That's why I come to you and ask you for talk about to talk about everything about Bitcoin. So perhaps we set the scene. Uh, can you share with us your background and what led you to write a book of Bitcoin evangelism? Uh, it's a great question. And it's it's pretty funny because it's such a Bitcoin, cryptocurrency, blockchain, whatever you want to call this industry. It's so new that, you know, I, I've been in in the industry in some capacity for about eight years now. But I mean, if you've been in the industry for two, three years, you're kind of you're kind of a veteran by that point. Um, now, everybody, everybody gets in different amounts. You know, some people dabble in it. Some people go into it full force. Um, some people have a deeper understanding than others. But um, yeah, that's kind of one of the interesting things about a new industry is you can be a veteran very quickly <laughs> in this industry just because so few people have, have adopted. I mean, you know, maybe hundreds of millions of people have adopted blockchain of some form, but relative to the entire planet, that's a relatively small amount. Um, so I personally got into Bitcoin around 2013. I was very skeptical of it. I, I looked at it through a lens of wanting to disprove a couple of friends that had told me about it. Um, mm -hmm. And it wasn't until I listened to, uh, are you familiar with the Joe Rogan Experience podcast? Have you heard of that before? Uh, uh, yeah, yeah. I, I, I listen to his podcast sometimes. Oh, you, you like his podcast? Okay. Or yeah. I don't know if you like it, but you listen to it. Um, right. So back in 2013, he had a he had a guest on named Andreas Antonopoulos. And when I had my my Bitcoin light bulb moment was when Andreas Antonopoulos, he, he said he made a, a bunch of compelling points. But one of the things that he said was what blockchain, the advent of blockchain represented was the first time that something digital could be made scarce. And that was not 
possible in the history of computer science. Hmm. We saw in the digital revolution of music when MP3 files came out that hmm. changed the music industry, right? You could yes. all of a sudden go to a website and download any song you wanted. You didn't have to pay the artist. These artists that were multi, multi-millionaires before, now they had to completely change their the way they monetize their music. They had mm-hmm. to do it through perf- live, live performances and merchandise and things like that. Their album sales became a much less significant portion of their revenue because things that were digital inherently you could just click copy and paste and then mm-hmm. you could copy and paste it as much as you want or you could download it as much as you wanted and so as much as people wanted to have truly digitally native money before mm. 2009 it actually wasn't possible because you couldn't have that one key element of scarcity um, and you couldn't control people from printing their own their own digital money because they could just anybody and here in the united states we have a central bank called the federal reserve um the federal reserve they have the privilege to print money on demand digitally but at least with that system there's one party doing it rather Mm -hmm. than everybody if we if you had digital money and you didn't have a way to make it scarce anybody with a computer could just print their own money um and so yeah that's what blockchain right and to me that was a foundational moment i that was kind of the light bulb moment for me i said aha this can be the substrate the foundational layer for uh for money for finance um everything's going digital there's there's mm-hmm. we're not going back to analog we're going to a mm-hmm. global society we're going to countries and, and individuals you and i are communicating across the world right now digitally mm-hmm. it only makes sense that our money and our transmission of value is going to go digital something's going to be the solution to that i think that bitcoin and blockchain are the solution to that so 2013 it is your aha moment to know the uh uh core concept of bitcoin uh it is the uh, digital scarcity because uh you are you are not gonna double spend one bitcoin uh because it is digital so what mm, based on this uh with what you just said can you just a very broad question what is bitcoin can you elaborate a, a little bit more about, about it just uh, think of me as a layman <laughs> yeah well mm. um i think it, it that's why it took me, uh, I had to write an entire book because to make the mm. pitch, I mean, in a, and now I'll give you, I'll give you a quick, a quick canned answer here um, for the sake of the show. But I think that it is one of those things that you kind of need to peel the layers back to really um, grasp Peaceful. the whole picture. Peaceful. I mean, you know, I shouldn't be able to convince anybody totally in, in a sentence or two. Um, but what I think blockchain represented aside from the digital scarcity was a way for individuals to be able to act peer to peer also digitally. Um, before blockchain, there was no way to for you and I to send a payment. If you and I were standing next to each other and we had cash in our hand, we mm. can make a peer-to-peer payment in cash. But as mm. soon as we go online or as soon as we're across any distance, we can no longer do that. We're relying on intermediaries, third parties, fourth parties, fifth parties. If I were to send you um, a payment, if you were in the United States even, we could be right next to each other and I wanted to send you a payment through a popular app like Venmo. Venmo is one of our most popular payment apps here. There's at least five parties involved in that transaction. There's me, I start the transaction. I wanna send Arrow $10, then my bank has to approve it. Then Venmo is the payment rail that transfers that. Then your bank, has to approve the receipt of it. And then finally you get it in your account. So there's all these intermediaries and what blockchain represented at its one of its most foundational levels was the removal of all those extra parties. And it's mm. just Arrow and Brian 
interacting through a digital ledger that's that's mindless. I mean, it, it makes it sound bad when I say it's mindless. Uh-huh. It literally is just it just does what it's told. It doesn't have bias. It doesn't care what race or nationality or where on the earth you are or what you're buying. It doesn't care about any of those things. Mm. All that it does, it says if person A tells mm. you know the algorithm that it wants to send ten dollars to person B. I'm going to process that transaction. It doesn't have a way to be an intermediary. It just sends A to B. Mm. Got it. So basically, the first uh, core feature of Bitcoin uh, uh, is the digital digital scarcity. Uh, and the second point is the uh, peer-to-peer transaction. There are mm. no absolutely no third parties uh, intermediaries uh, involved. Uh, if I send uh, Brian a Bitcoin, it is just between you and me and on-chain, on-blockchain. So maybe we can talk a little bit about what is blockchain and yeah. Yeah. So a, a blockchain on its technical sense. And so mm. I'm, as far as the computer program, I'm not a pr- computer programmer. So if mm. you want technical answers, I could always send you to the, the person that's going to give you the coded answer. Um, Cause you're a pretty sophisticated guy. I like to, I, I can, I can speak to speak to plain people on this and at, at its core, all the blockchain is, is it's a record that can't be altered in the past. And so if you're going to have a financial record for all of the world's money, it has to be trustless. And that goes beyond this idea of trust. And what um, when we deal with an accounting ledger, there's a level of trust to that. You, ho- you have to hope that whoever wrote in the transactions did it correctly, that there wasn't, like you said earlier, a double spend. You have to make sure that it's a flawless transaction. I, I run a business. And our books have to be clean, but there's always the room for human error. And especially if we have multiple accountants working on our books, there's there's issues that they could make, um, you know, two people could input something incorrectly. What a blockchain does, or at least what a fully functional blockchain like Bitcoin does, not all blockchains are created equally. Bitcoin is a, is a very, very special blockchain in the fact that it does this better than any of the others. Um, it audits itself every 10 minutes. Every computer in the world that's running Bitcoin is taking a look at all the transactions and saying, we're all on the same page. Great. Now, the analogy I like to use is imagine we're sitting in a room and we're all recording transactions. There's, there's 10 of us. There's just 10 of us. And at the end of 10 minutes, we all show each other our notepads. Hey, do you have all these answers? And we confirm with each other. Yes, we all have the same answer. Now, imagine an 11th person shows up and they want to they want to game the system. And so they want to put in whatever tra- they want to put in their own transaction that enriches them somehow. At the end of the next 10 minutes, they're going to put in a fraudulent transaction and they're going to get caught by every one of the other people. Because when we sh- all show each other our work, the transparency of that process makes it so that nobody can game the system. The way I, I like to say it too is uh-huh. it's like trying to st- uh, to steal an old woman's purse in the middle of a police station. You just can't do it. You're going to get caught right away, right when you try to do it. Um, so a blockchain at its fundamental level is a, is a really, really good record keeping system. Again, mm-hmm. it is necessary if you're going to hold the world's money. Mm. Um, it is the proof of, proof of work mechanism of the uh, Bitcoin blockchain. And uh, I I truly buy into the beauty of it because before that I've never thought, thought of something that's uh, a blockchain, uh, no, a technology that can really automatically to do uh, to have it to come up with a consensus uh, without uh, intermediary 
at all. But there's a uh, disadvantage. Um, actually, our pastor agree on uh, pastor disagree with it. Uh, is some of the critics which would like to say, hey, proof of work, uh, is beautiful. Uh, it can uh come up with consensus with uh just by the system by the peers by itself. But the energy consumption is really high. Uh, especially from some techies, they would like to say, hey, uh. Watching a proof of work is like uh, the uh, is because they are techies. They would like to say, "Hey, you are like designing the slowest computer in the world." That's their criticism. What What's your perspective on this? Yeah, no, I mean that that's an honest uh, accusation that they're that they're lobbying against proof of work. It's an inherently slow process. Um, it's designed. That's a security feature of of that. Mm -hmm. I mean, we've seen faster blockchains. We've seen blockchains mm -hmm. with with 20 second block times where bitcoin it's every 10 minutes a block is created there's there's chains that have much much faster block times and those chains have always had problems um mm -hmm. to develop consensus over that you you need to have a proper kind of latency period where everybody can can check mm -hmm. that um there's a there's a holy trinity when it comes to blockchains there's mm -hmm. it's security decentralization and speed yeah, I like no, it. Yeah, PC no, leverage is peaceable. Yeah, she, like that's that's the dream blockchain mm -hmm. someday that you can have all three components. Bitcoin's the only blockchain in the world that has two of them. It has decentralization and it has security. It's the most secure computer network in the world by far. It's it's so secure. It's very very decentralized, but it's slow. It doesn't have that third component yet. And mm -hmm. where the third component is coming in, I don't know how familiar you are with Lightning Network. Have have you have you heard? Yeah. So there's second layer or third layer solutions or even some people say there's there's layer zero solutions that might be some of that some of the help mm -hmm. there um i don't even understand what a layer zero solution is that to me <laughs> that just sounds that sounds uh kind of hacky but but I, I understand there's a technical reason for that but mm -hmm. a layer two would just mean there's a second um a second layer that's built for speed. And so all of the decentralization, all of the security would be at your first layer. And then all of your speed and your cheap transactions and all that would be built on your second. And that is kind of similar to how the internet is built. There's not one protocol for the internet. There's not just HTTP, right? We have mm. we have hypertext um, as, as one of the core foundations for, for the internet, but we have SMTP for emails. HTTP yeah. doesn't, doesn't process emails. SMTP built on top of that does process it. So it is the way that we stack the internet. And so I think that's how Bitcoin is. I think we need to think more of Bitcoin. A lot of people think of it as a company or mm. a or as a um, even like an, an asset, which it is an asset to some degree. But I think it needs to be thought first and foremost as a protocol. I think it's a base protocol for transferring value. And so you just you're going to build um, additional performance on top of the, the layer one network. But yeah, they're absolutely right. Proof of work demands a lot of energy consumption. That is also a security feature. Um, and then we can talk more about whether Bitcoin's bad mm -hmm. for the environment. I think that's a good conversation to have, um, mm -hmm. but that is intended. It's meant to be hard money. The mm -hmm. same reason why gold is valuable because it's hard. It's hard to get out of the ground. And mm -hmm. so it's that makes something valuable. There's just the more work you put into something, the harder it is. You know, not everybody can have it because not everybody mm -hmm. can just make it out of nowhere. And so that's what makes Bitcoin and other scarce assets valuable. But yeah, um, they're right. Proof of work is slow and it is energy intensive. I'm not arguing those points at all that they're absolutely right.
Beautiful. The reason why I'm asking you this question is I'm not challenging you. I just want the uh, audience to know more about different perspectives. Uh, mm, there's no right or wrong thing because uh, at the end of the day, uh, mm, it is just a system and it needs to take care of uh, mm, all the different characteristics and take a good balance in between all of them. So you just point out those three points and that's uh yeah technical system is like that you have to um, have to have trade-off sometimes because of you want to achieve something and then you have you need to let go of something so uh with that said i would like to uh you just mentioned one thing uh it is a protocol bitcoin is a protocol to transfer value uh in terms of uh more naturally uh and how i want to change the topic a little bit into the Bitcoin pies because I'm not that uh, an early adopter like you. You mm, you look into Bitcoin in 2013, but yeah. I think I, more or less just maybe these three or four years I really look into it. I'm really late to this game, and I I haven't even buy Bitcoin yet. But I want to know why Bitcoin the price goes. Uh, it is not just high, but it is so volatile. In all this year, after the first Genesis, Genesis book in 2009 to now, I look at the history. It is crazy. How does all that happen? What, what yeah, what happened? Yeah, well, um, I, I'm not here to uh, be an apologist <laughs> for the markets. Markets can be very wild and very, uh, very irrational at times. I think um, a lot of what we're seeing here in the stock market, in the cryptocurrency market, um, especially here in the United States, there's a lot of hysteria. And uh, I saw, I was at, I like to do jujitsu. I don't know if, uh, do you know ah. what jujitsu is? Yeah, you jujitsu. I practice Muay Thai and Wing Chun. Do uh, you really? Okay. I, I have a little bit in the past. I, I'm not very good at those, but I, I'm a jujitsu guy. So I was in a jujitsu class yesterday morning and a guy walked out of the class in the middle because he wanted, he was freaking out over the stock market and he wanted to sell his entire stock portfolio. And I asked him why. And he said, because some of his friends were panicking. And so he wanted to sell and get out of the market. And he didn't have a really good reason why. And so when I, and this guy, he's a sophisticated guy. He's a CEO of a company. He's an, exec, an executive on a couple, for a couple companies. And uh, not a, he's not a dumb guy, but um, we see people um, panic when it comes to worrying what's out there. And I think Bitcoin investors, crypto investors are typically younger investors. We're just now starting to get where the big institutions are buying it. That might be a little bit more stable, but even they have ways to play the game. Sometimes they are trying to suppress the price in order so that they can buy more in the long term um, because it is a relatively illiquid market compared to equities and things like that. I think it's a little bit more easily manipulated. And so we are subject to market manipulations. Um, I, I posted a, a chart on my Instagram the other day. Um, if you zoom out over the first 13 years of Bitcoin, it's it's really like a straight line up. It goes like this and it's very smooth and it looks really good um, and it's a great upline. But when you zoom in, it looks it just looks awful. It looks scary and it looks oh, okay. very volatile. The shorter term that you look, um, it's very scary. Bitcoin, nobody that's held Bitcoin, this is a fact, nobody that's held Bitcoin for four years or more has lost money or lost value. If you've bought it and held it for four years, 
there's not a single person on the planet that is that is lost at that point. And it doesn't mean that that's always proof going forward, but up to this point that that's held, that's held true. Part of that is because Bitcoin does have these four year cycles. Um, is your audience familiar with the having the having cycle of Bitcoin? Mm, no, I'm not sure. Okay. No, no. Yeah, not everybody, right? Okay, so so Bitcoin as of today, there's about 900 Bitcoin that get created. Um, and in two years from now, um, there's a halving. So this happens every four years. We're about halfway to the next one. So it's about two years away. The daily incoming new Bitcoin will get cut to 450 Bitcoin per day. So where governments print more and more money over time, huh. Bitcoin started with higher inflation and its inflation rate gets cut in half every four years. And inevitably there'll only be 21 million coins. So at a certain point, there's no more new creation of Bitcoin. Mm -hmm. And why, why Bitcoin goes up over these four year cycles is because the supply, the new supply gets cut in half. And so there's a, a supply and demand constriction and that's what causes the price to rocket up. So we've never seen an asset like this that has a programmatic planned mm -hmm. supply uh, decrease. And so I think that creates some new dynamics to the market and people don't not, know quite how to price it in. Um, I think before this next halving, you're going to see a lot of price rise to the upside because people are going to try and front run this phenomenon. What's happened is every four years, I think the first halving was in 2012. Big Bitcoin was something like $12. The second halving was in 2016. Bitcoin was at $650. Uh -huh. The third halving was in 2020. I think Bitcoin was at something like $4,000 or no, it's at $12,000, I believe at that point. Mm. And so it's gone from $12 to $650 USD to, you know, 12,000 or wherever it was at. So these four year cycles, you see it kind of going up nice and, you know, it's a, it's a pretty steep incline, but yeah, in the short term, it, it is volatile. And I think that that's just an, an irrationality of, of mm. investors. Yeah. Got it. Is it really money supply really limited to 20, uh, if you I remember what, correctly it's 21 million uh become only yes exactly uh so uh, it, um, i want to know your perspective on uh what do you think about if bitcoin is like just currency people always talking about oh uh, can i use cryptocurrency or, or bitcoin to replace the uh uh whatever dollars uh whatever national currency what are the uh core features that uh make bitcoin uh has a long-term stable i'm i'm not talking about the, the short-term uh, fluctuation but the long-term stable wise uh what the core features that enable enable that uh, as a currency what, what i'm sorry just so i'm clear on the question what core features enable bitcoin to someday be a currency yeah, because uh, just compare uh, Bitcoin with other some whatever countries' currency. Some countries' currency they are very unstable, and people mm. would like to use some other things to do transactions, right? And but Bitcoin seems like in the long run, in the last decade, it is stably uh, rising up mm. in the very long run. Uh, yeah. yeah, set aside the short term, for, uh, uh, yeah. And so, what are the core features that make them uh, a good currency? Yeah. So Milton Friedman, um, I don't know if you're familiar with him in the United States. He's he's one of our most famous economists. He's he's passed away now, but mm. I actually quote him in my book. He said mm. the the most important factor to any currency is not 
whether it's inflating at 10% per year, 5% per year, or 2% per year, it's that it's a predictable incoming supply. That way we have fair rules that everybody knows how to play by them. Most central banks, like here in the United States, our central bank, mm. they don't tell us exactly how much money they print. And so there's no way to, mm. to judge that. We find out later. We find out through inflation numbers a year later and, and things like that. It's not a very open and, and easy to see system. With Bitcoin, it's programmed in. You can go out 50 years from now and you can pick any date on the calendar and we can calculate exactly how many Bitcoin are going to exist in the mm -hmm. world at that time. And so that amount of that's fairness, that's predictability. That's an even playing field for people. It doesn't give somebody in Hong Kong an advantage over somebody in Spain. It doesn't give mm -hmm. somebody in the United States an advantage over somebody in South America. Um, it's, it, it's really, um, it's a great system for currency because it's predictable. And so, yes, the, the price can be volatile in the short term, like we talked about. Over the long term, it should be a good store of value. Right now, the phase that Bitcoin's in, I don't think it's in a currency phase. It hasn't reached the maturity to be a currency. I don't think people want to use it because they don't want to collect Bitcoin and then hope it doesn't go down the next day, you know, if they need to turn around and buy bread with it. Um, I think right now people are treating it as digital gold. They're treating it as a way to preserve their their wealth. And as the price of Bitcoin stabilizes over the next you know 15 to 20 years, I think then we would see it being used as a transactional currency. And it could happen faster than that. I think if the Lightning Network um, mm. is kind of what it promises to be, what it's claiming to be, we could see that happen a lot faster. Um, because there's there's going to be all sorts of use cases. Um, I don't know how familiar your audience would be with El Salvador. El Salvador was the first country to adopt Bitcoin as a national currency. Hmm. They um, and I, I don't quote me specifically on the statistics, but I think hmm. their their gross domestic product, their GDP for their whole country, is something like four billion dollars. So their their total they're a small country, so their total economic output is like four billion dollars. They have a lot of expatriates that work in the United States, that work in other countries, and then they send money home. Mm. They used to pay before they went on the Bitcoin standard, before they started using the Lightning Network to send payments home. They were paying companies like Western Union or other remittance companies. Yeah. It was it's something like, yeah. yes, yeah, if you were going to send $100 home, you were going to pay $25 in transaction fees. It was absurd. And this is for people that $25 meant a lot. That meant That meant rent. That meant food. Um, they saved something to the effect of $400 billion in service fees in a single year. So they're adding about 10% of their gross domestic product just by having a more efficient payment rail. So I don't know exactly when Bitcoin's going to be a currency. I don't know exactly when it's going to face mainstream adoption. All I know is I see it being adopted and it just being so much better than the existing system. And it's like mm. when the internet came along, people said, you know, the, the, the mail carriers, <laughs> they said this, this email stuff's never going to catch on. Everybody wants to get a, they want to get a physical letter in the mail. That's way better. Everybody likes to be able to touch something. They like to be able to hold it. They want to get in, they want to get something in the mail. And that's what people said. And they, they wrote off email. They said email's never going to be adopted, but anybody that was looking objectively, they would look at email and say, this is so much faster. It's so much cheaper. Not only can I, I send anything, anytime. I can send it at light speed. I can send video files. I can send pictures. I can send music. I can do so much more with this. So the the yeah. digital always wins out over the analog. And so right now we have, we have analog money. Um, Bitcoin's the first digital money ever. So digital, there's just no historical precedent for digital not winning out. So I don't know the time of when it will be a currency. I just know that it's going to happen.
Got it. So basically, cryptocurrency is a very great asset from your perspective is to park your money to uh, treat it maybe as the digital gold to hedge um, the risk you are having some other asset class. Uh, so yeah, because uh, it is a real preserve of the your money of the purchasing power. Uh, so stay in this as a class cryptocurrency can i uh because we we are running out of time but i i think i have one or two more questions uh what is the difference between bitcoin and other cryptocurrency like ethereum i have to tell you the truth the reason why i got into uh cryptocurrency is uh, <laughs> at the first place i want to play some uh web free based fortune game it's called sandbox i have to connect my to metamask i have to buy something that's yeah I, i'm not because i'm not i don't uh i'm not really a big money guy <laughs> and then that's where i really look into uh cryptocurrency so please tell us the difference between bitcoin and other crypto like ethereum yeah, yeah that's, that's great i've done i've done sandbox as well so I, i'm right there with you um yeah. so i there's you know there's so many cryptocurrencies out there, but I'm glad that you said Bitcoin and Ethereum because that is that's that's the best. The, those are the best two to pick the differences between. Um, mm -hmm. On on the, uh, do you have an iPhone? Are iPhones popular in Hong Kong? Yes. <laughs> there we go. <laughs> All right, I got mine here too. Okay, so on the iPhone you have Apple Pay mm -hmm. and you have the App Store. Those are mm -hmm. two parts of the iPhone that two that do two separate functions. They don't compete with one another. They're two parts of a whole. And so mm -hmm. Bitcoin would be more akin to Apple Pay. It's it's going to be your your transactional currency, um, mm -hmm. what you buy things with. And Ethereum is going to be like the App Store. You know, with Ethereum, the cool function about both Bitcoin and Ethereum is that they're both decentralized. So it's like decentralized Apple Pay, mm -hmm. and it's like decentralized um, App Store. So all of the, I mean, I think Ethereum. I'm a I'm a Bitcoin evangelist. I love Bitcoin. I'm I'm a Bitcoin first guy. But I think Ethereum or or, or smart contract platforms in general are going to be massive. I think they're also going to be the mm -hmm. foundation for businesses going forward or for maybe not even businesses, but blockchains that remove middlemen. Because again, going back to what is a blockchain, it's something that removes a middleman. And so mm -hmm. here in the United States, we have a popular ride-sharing app called Uber. Mm -hmm. Uber is a, a famous ride-sharing app. All they do, and it's a great service, but they pair people that need a ride with people that have a car, and then they take a payment for matching the two people. What if there was an algorithm that could just pair a driver and a rider together, and the driver could pay, you know, they could make more money, they make more profit because you cut out the 25% margin of the middleman, and the rider could save 10% and everybody's happy. That's a better system. If 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 Ethereum has an app store full of these decentralized apps, mm -hmm. that's a game-changing proposition. It really is. Yes. So good, I agree. Very beautiful answer. I think my last question is: Can I say you are not Bitcoin evangelism? Uh, yeah, you are basically the cryptocurrency or even Rafi evangelist because you are <laughs> you are very knowledgeable, not just about Bitcoin, but also basically every question I ask you, you can answer me right back. <laughs> well, I appreciate that. I mean, I. I, I think that I think Bitcoin's a good starting point, and that's why I try to simplify it. Because if we try to shotgun answer all of the cryptocurrencies, it can be overwhelming for people. Um, mm. But I do have a section of my book where I break down these different crypto asset classes. I think it's important to understand how mm. how the ecosystem works. So there's a whole chapter in my book devoted to that, to breaking down what is a an app a application protocol, what's an NFT, what's what is a money, you know, what is 
an oracle. So it's, it, it can sound like a lot, but we do it in simple terms. And I think that helps people. Okay. So really this, this is the last question. <laughs> uh, your book, Bitcoin Evangelism and uh, Freshly Minty Books.com. Uh, yeah, uh, this is the uh, resources that you point our audience to uh, look for more, not just Bitcoin knowledge, but also uh, cryptocurrency in general. Um, uh, if uh, what else, uh, what other resources would you like to uh, share with the audience uh, about these topics? Or, and last but not least, uh, how do the audience reach out to you if they want to? Yeah, I appreciate that. I, I appreciate the opportunity. It's it, it's really fun talking to you. So um, I would love to to, to chat again sometime. Um, another good place to reach me is on Twitter. It's just mm. at Brian V T H E Mint. Um, mm. I'm really responsive on there. I tweet a lot. I answer the direct messages and stuff like that. I love to answer questions about this. A lot of times I'll even, if somebody asks an in-depth question, I'll do a video response to it. So it's, it's a little bit more, you know, there's a little, it's a little deeper. Um, my book's also available on Amazon now. So I don't know, um, you know, if people like to go through Amazon, that's an option. There's an ebook. So it's a little bit cheaper if you want to do the ebook and, um, a fun option. Now my books, the first book ever, um, this is one of the cool things about new technologies is you get to find new ways to apply it. My mm. book is the first book ever. I haven't found any other book that's done this. I hit a $1,000 Bitcoin wallet inside of the book. And so when you start a Bitcoin wallet, you get 12 words that secure your wallet. And so if you find uh -huh. those 12 words, which I've hidden throughout the book, you can go, you can open your own Bitcoin wallet and you can actually hack my Bitcoin. You can steal my Bitcoin from me. And it's about a thousand dollars worth of Bitcoin in there right now. So I know a couple people, I, I, I've had a bunch of readers so far tell me they found four or five of the words, but it's, uh -huh. it's not easy. It's like a treasure hunt. So the first person to find those words in the book, they can take my Bitcoin. Oh man. So there's no first, there's no such people yet, right? No. No, nobody's found it. And this is the first book ever to do that. So it's a pretty fun little game that we get to play with it. Um, it, it helps people understand. And, and the reason why I do it, it's a, it is a marketing thing. It's to gain attention for mm. the book, but it also does help people understand that there's interesting ways to secure your money. Um, I, my, my, my crypto, my Bitcoin in this wallet, it's not secured by a bank. It's not secured by anybody else. It's secured by those 12 words and you know, if you find them, then you can break the security on it. So yeah, huh. interesting. I will help you with that uh, with marketing, and then maybe we can name this episode as a treasure hunt for Brian's Bitcoin. <laughs> there we go. I like that. <laughs> <laughs> cool. So uh, thank you very much, Brian. It is a very enjoyable. I would like to say this is discussion because uh, yeah, we just exchange ideas and also our perspective on. Uh, I would like to say this is cryptocurrency in general. So thank you very much, man. Yes. Thank you for having me. I appreciate it. Yeah. So for the audiences, thank you for tuning in until next time.